I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner with Gould Evans, and back with us on the show today is our friend Chuck Marone, who I hope is on a positive road to recovery and enjoying what I'd guess is the last few weeks of summer left in Minnesota. Have you guys moved into the autumn season? Uh, no, we cling to summer as long as we can here. And so, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> it's been in the 50s at night and kind of in the, the mid 70s to low 80s during the day. And so this is like the most beautiful time of the year. But we we absolutely count this as summer. Like this is, <laughs> when you when you have as little summer as we have, you've got to count every minute of it. So I don't think until Labor Day, we really consider it not summer, right? The 50s is very cold to me. <laughs> um, well, so. let me just tell you, th- this is ideal sleeping weather. Like when you go to bed and it gets, you know, inside the house is like, I don't know, 70 degrees. And then by the time you wake up in the morning, it's like, I don't know, 60 um, it's, it's like, you never want to get up. It is so beautiful to sleep in that weather, but yeah, I'll buy that. That's, that's yeah. not too bad. And you don't have to use air conditioning anymore. Which, no, gosh, no. Yeah. Well, today we are going to be talking about New York city with an article published in the New York times by Matthew Hag entitled Manhattan vacancy rate climbs and rents drop 10%. So according to the article, rental listings in New York City have skyrocketed higher than any month in the past decade, apparently driving down the rental costs throughout the city by 10% now. Right now, moving companies are reporting unprecedented business, and many landlords are offering concessions to fill these vacancies beyond just lower rent prices, including offering a period of free rent and paying broker's fees, which I've actually never heard of for, for rentals. This comes as, you know, we are experiencing a global pandemic. 20% of New Yorkers are now unemployed. Office towers have been closed for quite some time now. And, you know, we're experiencing all kinds of turmoil in cities across the country, including New York. So, of course, New York has faced challenges in the past, including the September 11th attacks in 2001 and the 2008 Great Recession. So we obviously can't predict the future, but we know at this point many people are moving out. Because I have not been around long enough, I feel like I don't have any substantial memories of how New York has been impacted by past crises. The potential outcome of New York seems really unclear to me, and there's just quite a bit of complexity in this discussion. I wonder, Chuck, do you think that this article and articles like this are hyperbolic, or is New York truly going to anticipate a long-term period of decline, and is this, I guess, the end of New York as we know it? <laughs> it's it's interesting because I've seen a lot of articles that frame it that way, like, you know, New York is finished, and then... Like I saw one article that a friend of mine who lives in New York posted this week is just like, you know, F you, all the people who say New York is finished. Like, you know, <laughs> the city will never go down. And I think there's a bit of 
hyperbole, but there's also a bit of truth in this. One of our board members, Ian Rasmussen, is from New York. And I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn by telling you about our conversation. I asked him, you know, because he, Ian kind of frames the world, really. I'm not trying to disparage him. But for him, like the United States is New York City and then, you know, uh, San Francisco, <laughs> Chicago, and then like the rest of the country. And that that's not to say he's like a New York snob or New York elitist, but like for him... The country is like one big city, New York, and then a couple other smaller cities that are kind of interesting, and then like every place else. I asked him about this, and he said the the very strange thing going on right now is that the trade-off you get for being in New York is that you live with more people, less personal space, all the things that like suburban people paint as like, I would never live in a big city because, and then dot, dot, dot. He said, you live with those things, but they're easily like a, a good trade-off when you get to enjoy uh, cafes and nightlife and, you know, the joy of meeting other people and a walk with friends through Central Park and convenient subway access and, you know, Broadway plays. And like, he goes on and on, like all these things that like make New York city, this very exciting place to live. And he said, you take out all of that, like get rid of it, just like wipe it out. Like you can't do any of those things. And now all of a sudden you're stuck in a too small apartment in a congested city, you know, with nothing like redeeming about, or, or a lot of the redeeming stuff taken out. And he said, the idea that this wouldn't have a huge negative impact on people's desire to live in New York is just silly. Like, of course it does. Of, of course it's having a huge impact. I felt like that was from someone who is extremely pro New York City. I thought that was a, a reasonable insight. On the other hand, you know, you've got someone like Johnny Sanfilippo out in San Francisco, who I think has made some really good points about that city that applied in New York. You look at property values in New York, and they've obviously been driven for a long time by the highest end part of the market, driving prices up and basically buoying, you know, kind of lifting everything else up with it. Uh, wipe out that top, which is what seems to be happening to some degree. And what you see is that this kind of like filter down, everything drops. I think the question becomes this financial shakeout, like how much can things drop before it actually starts to destroy the financial part of the market. But I don't think, you know, like if you cut rent in half in New York City, would you lose a bunch of people or would a bunch of people say, well, now I can finally afford to live in New York City and move there? I'm pretty sympathetic to the second view. I think if you actually, you know, reduced prices because the market collapsed, uh, you're not going to have New York become 5 million people. You'll have 10 million people, but they'll be 10 million different people. I don't know if that's a bad thing. I think that that is very interesting just because I've visited New York several times and it's a wonderful city. I love it. I, I love being there and I can see why people live there. But to me, every time I visited, I've kind of felt like I'm experiencing what New York would be like if I had lots of money to spend on going to Broadway plays and going and you know, to restaurants and enjoying all the things that New York has to offer. But, you know, given my, my Midwestern income, there's absolutely no way that I would be able to afford to live in New York. 
when I think of cities like New York, cities that have become increasingly expensive for most people, I keep coming back to this thought that this has happened primarily due to the shift in priorities around what cities or you know human settlement are for. I even notice in my own city an increasingly heavy reliance on tourism and commuters and outside sales to boost the local economy. And while that technically makes sense through the lens of strictly focusing on economic growth, in places like New York, this focus kind of overrides any goals of establishing like a long-term functioning community to instead turn the city into somewhat of an amusement park. When your city functions as an amusement park, you attract you know, of course, lots of newcomers and tourists who spend money that contribute to the local tax base. And the lore also attracts wealthy investors, even investors from out of the country. And everybody in that has a shared interest in making the city the greatest and most amazing amusement park possible. The people who are negatively impacted by this are the renters, whether they're newcomers or long-term residents. The faster that the prices are driven up, the less likely that those existing residents or, you know, incoming residents will ever participate in the new value that is captured. So New York isn't really the only city that does this. Every city is competing for growth in the tax base, including my own city. And now during coronavirus, we're seeing that the cities with a heavy focus on tourism and investor growth and commuters are struggling really greatly right now. And these cities seem to have become more of a financial or an an outcome of financialization rather than traditional human settlement. This is clearly just a very fragile model. And, you know, this year has just made me really question the validity of how we approach economic development and how we can shift the focus back to thinking of our cities as functioning community rather than merely, you know, amusement parks. I think you can best think of this in a simple way in an Airbnb concept. I think that Airbnb is a fantastic way for someone to, you know, augment their own income, to, you know, be able to say if they run into a financial hard time, rent out their place for a little bit, or if they're going to, you know, be gone for a couple of weeks at Christmas, they can rent out their place to someone and, and use that money for, you know, whatever purpose they need. Airbnb has given people a lot of flexibility. And I think in the very early days of Airbnb, it kind of functioned that way. I mean, that was the model that was set up. And you're like, well, okay, this is this is really good. This is almost getting back to the old days, you know, uh, in air quotes, where, you know, hotels were for the very rich, but everybody else would stay in bed and breakfast and boarding houses and places where people would, you know, rent out their uh, spare bedroom to people. This was a very kind of good way to to do things. Over time, you've seen two things happen in the Airbnb market that I think are representative of what you just described. The first is that people started to rely on the Airbnb income to essentially make their mortgage. I heard of people, and I know some other people who did similar things, but, but the ones that I heard of that were crazy is... I am required to rent my place out for a week every month in order to cash flow it. You know, I can't afford it with my wages, but if I rent it out one week a month, I can afford it. So I've got a deal with like another friend of mine where I go stay at their place for a week, you know, while we rent mine and then they come and stay at my place for a week while they rent theirs. And then we both get two weeks in our place without any guests. 
And that was like, you know, the way they use the Airbnb market in a hot market like New York City to be able to afford a place. Well, now all of a sudden, that's like a different financial arrangement, right? You're driving up the price uh, based on this kind of frothy, you know, as you described it as a tourist market, but, you know, certainly a different market than is just serving is what locals can afford. Well, now layer on top of that, the people who just buy the Airbnbs just to rent. I'm trying to buy a condominium unit in New York. I'm out in Queens and I'm trying to buy a, a two-bedroom condo, but I'm competing against someone who is buying that two-bedroom condo, planning to put it full-time on Airbnb and have 85% occupancy. They'll always be able to outbid me. Like they, they will always be able to outbid me. And so what you saw in particularly in the last decade, but but I think even more a little bit in the decade before that, you saw this kind of froth start to build in these markets. And people would say, well, this is supply and demand. People want to live in New York. Yeah, it really was a function though of how things were financed and how we chose to go about leveraging capital in our financial markets in order to juice housing prices in these, you know, very expensive, you know, very high demand kind of places. I think that, you know, like all financial markets like this, the the saying is you take the stairs up and the elevator down. And I don't think housing in New York, which has been very frothy and very overpriced uh, historically for for a, a decade or two now, uh, is going to be immune from taking that elevator down. And that, that certainly seems to be what we're seeing happen right now. Well, in fact, because of the distortions, it seems like it could even be more extreme just because of the complications with it. We've talked in the past on this show about how price points are somewhat a function, uh, you know, they function as a barometer that should really be indicative of how the market is functioning. In a place like New York, especially, it's not clear that price points provide any reflection of what's actually going on because of the extreme levels of distortions in the market. And the financialization of real estate has created just a really complicated web of different factors that are impacting the cost of housing. And it's just really especially important to reckon with this when trying to develop assumptions about what happens next and if a trend of downward rent continues. New York's real estate market is a function of the belief that housing prices will be higher tomorrow than they are today, and really all real estate prices. And in fact, the prices must inflate in order to keep you know all of this inflated, to keep this as a bubble. Our idea of revival as Americans has generally been to blow that bubble back up as quickly as possible. And renter payments are essentially propping up this bubble in addition to the tourism market and everything else. So now that rent prices are dropping, it sounds like a good thing because it sounds like now finally middle-class people will have the opportunity to live in New York City and that's such a great thing. But what are the actual repercussions of a deflation in such an extreme and distorted housing market? What happens when the prices drop and loans default and what happens you know, to the tax base and the services that are currently provided because of the inflation. And you know, I, I just kind of wonder what, what actually happens if it continues to go down. This is the, the unthinkable outcome, right? Like from a financial standpoint, you can see that 
whether you're looking at the Treasury Department or the Federal Reserve or the president in the executive office or, or, or Congress, there is a general consensus amongst people who are involved in making economic decisions that the idea of these prices going down is unfathomable. It's just not, it's not on the table. Like it cannot be allowed to happen. And the, the reason for that is pretty clear and I think pretty easy to understand. All of these places have financial instruments attached to them. When we talk about financialization, what we're talking about is leveraged money, leveraged capital loans being used to purchase real estate and those loans being set at a certain price you know, a certain value of the real estate. When that real estate price drops below what is owed on it, you've got something that is underwater and that, you know, becomes untenable. It's one thing for you and me to have houses that are underwater because, you know, we just have to work for the man and pay it off. And, you know, the, the, the ramifications for us are really personally destructive if we don't. But, you know, the general economy doesn't suffer. You do that widespread for suburban houses or even urban houses like yours and mine, and you get the housing crisis of 2008. This was a, a devastating thing that almost took down the world economy. You do this in real estate like New York, and you're talking something on a completely different scale. You know, the Hartford insurance company likely owns millions and millions of dollars of commercial real estate and residential rental properties in New York as part of their insurance portfolio. You pay your insurance premium. They know that they're going to have to pay claims in the future. They don't put their money in the stock market. They don't buy gold and bury it in the backyard. Uh, <laughs> they make investments across the economy. So part of the investments they make are in real estate. So an insurance company like Hartford which has billions and billions of dollars under management, will have some of that in commercial real estate in a city like New York. We'll have some of it in, in residential rental real estate. Well, if the price drops by 10%, the market price drops by 10%, they don't get to go out and say, well, how do we make better use of this? Can we subdivide these places and maybe increase the number of units a little bit? Can we remodel? Do we do? No, they own a piece of paper. They own a property technically, but they really just own a piece of paper. And if that piece of paper starts to decline, all of a sudden now their insurance portfolio is underwater. Uh, they have to you know, raise rates. They have to raise capital. They have to sell these distressed properties to someone else. The, the market starts to shift and accelerate. And, and actually, I think the term you would use is it starts to break very, very quickly. And so this idea of taking the stairs on the way up and the elevator on the way down is very true for financial markets. These things unravel very quickly. When you see the, the Federal Reserve doing things that seem insane, like buying junk bonds at, at you know, two and 3% interest rates to keep, but you know, uh, buying the bonds of companies that are, are flagrantly doing like immoral things like you know, using uh, the, the, the money to do stock buybacks and prop up uh, executive compensation in the middle of, you know, a, a Great Depression. When you see them doing things like this, you're like, is this group just evil? And no, what they are is they're scared. They're scared that, you know, these big, you know, real estate markets like New York, like San Francisco, like Chicago will start to unravel. And that will not just take the whole system down, but it will, it will collapse modernity because modernity is built on financialization. What I think is so complicated about that is that, you know, some people might say, okay, 
like let then then let it all, you know, unravel. But I don't think that we really have a clear idea about what unraveling really looks like. I agree. It's a little bit like saying, you know, what would nuclear annihilation look like? And you're like, well, you know, I don't know exactly, but I know it would not be fun. I think, you know, what would financial annihilation be? It would, it would not be fun. L- l- let me let me make this concrete for people. When you look historically at uh, price to earnings ratio for uh, for residential construction, um, the amount uh, that people would pay for a house or a home or a condo or a rental based on their income is historically between one to one and like two and a half to one. Let's say two to one. So you make a hundred thousand a year, you can afford a two hundred thousand dollar home. Like you can afford the payments on a two hundred thousand dollar home. That's been pretty true historically. There are people who have argued that. Well, food prices are lower and clothing prices are lower. Okay, yay globalization, you know, is how long is that going to continue? You know, is a dollar right. going to remain the the world's reserve currency? Are we going to continue to have tariffs? Are we going to have trade wars? Let's assume that globalization continues on its happy pace and we we can keep all those things down. So what what is a good price to earnings ratio? I don't know. Is it 3 to 1? Is it 4 to 1? Well, if you're in New York, it's been 7, 8 to 1. If you're right. in California, there there's cities like San Francisco that are 9 to 1 and and higher. What that means is that to get back to historic norms, prices have to fall by 75%, you know, by four times. Your your million dollar condo has to become a $250,000 condo. Or your person making $100,000 a year needs to be making 400,000 a year without other prices adjusting in response. If you are, you know, a titan of the economy, neither of those choices are really good. Neither of the choices seem attainable. But if you're forced to choose between one or the other, the inflation that drives up wages is way better than the deflation that drives down prices. And so there's a lot of people right now looking at this market, looking at the huge federal deficits we're running, looking at all the money that we're printing and throwing into this abyss of, of like deflationary decline. Um, saying, you know, the only outcome that balances this out is, you know, people making four times what they're making in apartments that cost as much as they do now. And that is a very different economy, you know, because that means, you know, you go to McDonald's and your, I don't even know what a McDonald's hamburger costs now, but you know, your, your $2 hamburger costs $15. Uh, you go to the grocery store and your cart of groceries that cost a hundred bucks now cost 800. People scoff at that world. They're like, that can't happen. We have globalization. We have, you know, all this stuff that's dry. Yeah. I think that that is what ultimately this looks like is, you know, a, a world that resets at, you know, housing prices that are somewhat compatible with what they are today, but prices for everything else that end up ultimately being a lot higher. Well, that's an interesting outcome and best of luck to all the New Yorkers out there and everybody else. It's hopefully we, this, you know, unravels in some way that is not too painful, but you know, it I wonder if this is going to be just another blowing up of the bubble similar to 2008. I think we can look at Nassim Taleb describes it as the Lindy effect. And it basically goes like this, like things that have been around a long time have a much higher likelihood of being around a long time. I probably said that in an inelegant way, but you know, New York, if if you told me, Chuck, uh, which one is more likely to exist in in a thriving state 
50 years from now, New York or that third ring suburb in Kansas City that, you know, has been around for 20 years. Um, New York has proven it can weather good times, bad times, ups and downs, tumult, uh, peace, prosperity. You know, it, it's, it's, it's made it through that. That third ring suburb is ridiculously fragile, unproven, and, uh, you know, doesn't have that track record. And so just by, you know, the notion of what is more likely to be around, the one that's been around the longest, it, it's shown it can survive. I think New York will be okay, but I, I don't think it will be a pain-free transition. Yeah. Humans are, are adaptable and, and that's something that we definitely know for sure. And so, you know, humans are adaptable. So are yeah. cockroaches though. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they survive in not pleasant ways in bad times. And so I, you know, I always get a kick out of when, and I don't think you meant this, but I always laugh when people say, well, we'll overcome hardship. We're adaptable. And I'm like, yeah, you know, adaptation sometimes like kills off the people that aren't. And that's, that's the tough part of, you know, being adaptable. Will we survive as a species? Yeah. Will New York survive? Yeah. Will it be pleasant? Um, I don't, I, I, I don't see how it becomes pleasant. No. Yeah. I so. Well, I think that's the reality of the world destruction right. and renewal and the cycles yeah. that, you know, all living things go through. So yeah, we're we're kind of like cockroaches in that way. So, <laughs> in, in a way, maybe not as hardy, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we're not, then we need to figure out a way to be hardier. I think we'll wrap up this conversation on that note today. But before we conclude, we are going to end with the down zone as usual, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that's been captivating our time lately. Um, what's been on your radar? this week, Chuck? I was thinking whether I would share this or not. And now we've gotten to this point and uh, I guess I don't have anything else. I took some time off. I had a little accident and uh, had some concussion symptoms and some brain stuff. And I actually got to the point where the doctors recommended just taking time off and letting my brain kind of chill and reset. I was going to say, there's a side benefit to that. I spent a couple of weeks which is weird for me, not reading anything, uh, not listening to anything, not watching any TV except for some uh, Minnesota Twins games with my daughter, off of social media, off of you know email and all that. I will say that there, you know, especially in the election season we're in now, and the way people seem kind of angry and merciless towards each other in so many ways, uh, it was kind of a beautiful. I mean, it was healthy for my brain, and I think it did a lot of good. It's also very peaceful to unplug in this way. And I'm kind of thinking about, you know, even without any type of, of trauma that you're dealing with, actually making this a regular part of my routine, maybe taking, I do a social media Sabbath. I've done that for a long time is what I call it. I don't mean to be irreverent to people who uh, take the Sabbath very seriously, but I, you know, I, I unplug social media for 24 hours uh, once a week, but I'm thinking about doing it at a broader scale you know, having maybe like a week a month or a week every six weeks where I just don't, you know, like unplug from all of it because it is actually very therapeutic. And I've, I emerged, I think, a, a happier person from it. So I haven't been reading anything. I uh, had took some time off. That sounds really healthy. You know, I, I feel like social media news has just gotten so intense lately that it's become just so unhealthy 
I sent you a video a while back that was um, from a stand-up comedian called named um, oh, what was his name Bill Hicks, where he did a, a bit about you know watching the news and how horrifying and amplified it is, and then you look out the window and it's like crickets. And I kind of feel like I've been experiencing that a little bit with like looking at you know social media or the news and you know, destruction and, you know, everything's horrible. And then you kind of just talk to regular people and have real conversations. And, you know, maybe I'm in a bubble, but it just seems like there's a lot more peace when you're living in the real world. So I've been kind of stepping away from all of that recently. This weekend, I'm actually going to Northwest Arkansas and I'm going to do some mountain biking and I'm going to try very hard not to get injured I've also been, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I very much don't want to get injured. I spent way too much money on my knee surgery in the past Uh, that, yeah, can't afford another knee surgery. So I'm going to try very hard not to get injured. And um, another thing that I thought has been very helpful recently for me during these very intense times is there's a meditation app called Waking Up, and it was developed by Sam Harris, who is a neuroscientist. He actually has developed this app in a way that it it kind of takes like the woo-woo out of meditating. And it's very, very much like a more of like a scientific approach to it. So I've never been somebody who's really been into like meditation and things like that. But I've, I've enjoyed just doing it and taking five minutes every day to like, you know, literally be still and, you know, trying to just live in the moment a little bit more. I totally know what you mean. The times in my life when I've been a very good practicing Catholic, you know, I was raised Catholic and I go to Catholic church. Uh, you know, Catholicism can be very intense if you are practicing uh, it the way that it's supposed to be. The times that I've been the most diligent about practicing have been the most peaceful times of my life because there's a lot of meditation built into that. And I'm familiar with Sam Harris and his program, and I, I find it interesting in a lot of ways. He, he leans into the atheism part of it, which you know is, is fine for a lot of people. I've gotten a lot of that same benefit out of you know the rosary and, and other things that is kind of built in the Catholic faith that I think has the same... Um, you know, mental effect on people. And yeah, I I find it to be very soothing, very healthy, and uh, very renewing. So that's awesome. I'm glad you've had that experience. Yeah. Well, I, I would totally agree that the rosary functions in a similar way. There's a lot of things that kind of function in that way as well, even things that are more active, um, even like mountain biking, for example, you're moving very quickly downhill it's kind of dangerous and you have to be concentrating in the moment and you kind of get into this state of like hyper concentration. I, I, I don't know a lot about meditation, but I kind of think that it functions in a similar way where you're just, you know, very focused in the moment because you have no choice. <laughs> and then I also do rock climbing and that's uh, kind of a similar thing as well, where you have to be focusing on the moment. You have to move forward. You can't go backwards. That's not really a choice unless you want to go all the way down a cliff. <laughs> so, you know, you you have to stay in the moment. So if anything teaches 
perseverance, it's, it's things like that, whether it's, whether you do it through meditation or praying or, um, something that is active. I think it's really important for people to find something like that these days. Listening to Upzoned. Yeah. Listening to Upzoned. <laughs> no, probably not one of them, but it's a, you know, it could be a healthy part of, of, of your life, I guess. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that I'm not so. inducing too much anxiety for anybody with these, you know, end of New York City stories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care.